you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of Acts, chapter number one. A brief break this morning from our study in the book of Hebrews to do what I'm calling Revisiting the Vision. Back in April, we introduced a 10-year plan of vision for the next 10 years for Longview Point, and in doing so, established a series of goals for ourselves. I'd like to revisit those this morning and sort of offer something of an evaluation as to how we have progressed in each of those areas and ways that we might pro progress further in the days immediately ahead. What we seek to do in casting vision is to join ourselves with the work of God's Holy Spirit. We want to position ourselves as individuals and as a body as best we possibly can to be used powerfully by God for the advancement of his kingdom. That is, in essence, our agenda, our goal. In doing so, I want us to reflect on the teaching of Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and make a series of observations about the Lord's work in those formative years of the church's history, ways that we might find encouragement for ourselves and our souls in the work to which God has called us. Acts chapter 1 beginning in verse number one. If you have found your way there, please join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of his word. Luke, the physician and friend of the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, records beginning in verse one. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he'd given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he'd said this, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that, you, that you've seen him going up into heaven. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James. All these were continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. In verses 1 through 3, Luke provides something of a summary of the Gospel of Luke and a brief introduction to the book of Acts by way of describing the events in the 40 days immediately after the resurrection of Jesus. 
these words function as something of a reaffirmation of the gospel. And although it may be incidental in verses 1 through 3 that this kind of restatement exists, it's in some ways essential to advancing the story. Clearly, an agenda of Acts chapter 1 is to reaffirm the truthfulness, the power, the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 1, the Bible says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he'd given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. The same author of the book of Acts is the author of the gospel of Luke. Luke functions as volume one. Book of Acts functions as volume two. You'll notice that they're roughly the same length. In fact, Luke is responsible for more word for word of the New Testament than any other author. They're roughly the same length because they're roughly the standard length of the longest scrolls available to a writer in the first century setting. And so volume one is given to the story of Jesus's life and death and resurrection, how he was born of a virgin, how he lived without sin, how he performed many mighty works in the presence of men, how he died as our substitute, having taken our place on the cross, how after three days he rose again, and how he now invites us to be joined with him in the likeness of his death and resurrection, that we might have eternal life in the day that is to come, an everlasting life, abundant life, in the here and now. The book of Acts is about the history of the church. We begin here with this reference to Theophilus, who is likely the sponsor. Most have regarded the books of Luke and Acts as being written to Theophilus in an evangelistic effort, but it's far more likely that this is following after the first century pattern of dedicating a work to the sponsor by mentioning him in the introduction to the book. Theophilus is, in all likelihood, a believer who's provided the financial means of writing these works. When we write, we don't think about what the paper costs or where we'll get a pen, but in the first century, there was a, a, a great deal of expense involved in this process. He now states in verse 3 that after Jesus had suffered, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Again, this reaffirmation of the gospel. Jesus is alive. That's what's at stake, right? If Jesus is alive, the gospel is true. I, one of the big goals this morning is to encourage you to share the gospel. You're going to find yourself coming up against all kinds of challenges to the gospel, intellectual challenges, philosophical challenges, scientific challenges, and otherwise. My answer to any challenge to the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus. This well-attested historical event whereby a man dies is laid aside in the grave, cold, blood congealed in his arteries. And after three days, his heart begins to thump again. His stiffened body begins to breathe the breath of life again. The stone is rolled away and Jesus walks out. You bring me your religious figurehead, you bring, you bring me your objection to the gospel that has behind it a man once dead, now raised from his death, and he gets all of the legitimacy that Jesus gets in my mind. But until then, the gospel stands affirmed throughout history as the only means of salvation for mankind. So Luke speaks to this in verse 
3. He presents himself. He abides with. He dwells with those disciples. It's not just that he shows up in a moment and reveals himself, but for 40 days, Jesus is with the disciples, encouraging them, affirming the truthfulness of the gospel by virtue of his presence. And then even after his ascension, there is the attendance of angels to again affirm and encourage the experiences of the disciples. Look to verse 9. After he'd said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you've seen him going into heaven. Here, even after the ascension of Jesus, there is this effort on the part of heaven to affirm, to solidify in the hearts of the disciples the truthfulness of the gospel. Now, I point this out because I think The reason many people don't share the gospel, which is at the heart of our vision, our goals, our agenda as a people. The reason many people don't share the gospel is because somehow they don't believe the gospel. Even for the believer, there can be this disconnectedness that exists between an orthodox understanding of the gospel in our head and what really moves us in our heart by neglect just growing cold or callous spiritually. We may affirm intellectually the exclusivity of the gospel, the saving power of the gospel, and maybe our hearts have been shaped by that, but we've cooled to that reality. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. Apart from Jesus, you cannot be saved from your sin. Apart from Jesus... At the moment of your death, you'll be cast into a sinner's hell and perish eternally. That's how critically important the gospel is for us. Not just in the there and then. It's not just the unseen either. Your only hope of rescue from your present sin, the consequences of your present sin, is the power of the gospel. The name of Jesus is the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. He is the way and the truth and the life. And no man can come to God except through Jesus. This is not a this is good for some and not for others kind of thing. This is an essential, absolute truth that Jesus is the only means of salvation. Luke goes to some length, and what he records is evidence that heaven goes to some lengths to ensure that those disciples understand full well the truthfulness of the gospel as they embark to fulfill the great commission Jesus has just granted them. Verse number four, the Bible begins to speak of the power of the Spirit. One of the key features, one of the major doctrinal contributions of the book of Acts in the New Testament is to help us to understand the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us as members of the body of Christ. Look to verse four. Bible says here, while he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. In other words, don't go without me. Moses, at one point in his leadership of Israel in their wilderness wanderings, told the Lord, if you're going, we're going with you. If you're staying, we're staying with you. 
where you are is where we want to be. Jesus is speaking from a different perspective here, but the principle remains the same. Don't go ahead in my work without the promised presence of my Holy Spirit. Which is to say by strong implication that we simply cannot do what God would have us to do apart from the power of God's Holy Spirit. Now there are ministries that operate in the power of natural ability who have charismatic leaders with strong, powerful, persuasive personalities. You don't have that, thankfully. I just don't know how you do the work of the Lord in a meaningful, eternally significant way apart from the power of the Spirit. You want. You want. You can do ministry at a level that will satisfy a lot of people. You can keep enough plates spinning to bear the appearance of health to convince the body that things are moving in a positive direction. There, there are guys with that level of natural ability. They can pull it off. But don't we want a ministry that isn't marked by a ceiling limited by the natural ability of our leadership or the skills and talents of our people? Don't, don't we want an experience like unto Acts where the watching world would have to note that what has happened there among them is clearly beyond their natural ability? They said of Peter and James and John, these are uneducated and untrained men. They took note that it was the power of Jesus' name preached among them that moved the masses and saved the soul and turned the heart and revolutionized a city and eventually a nation by the power of the gospel. Isn't that what we want? The good news is that's what we're promised. Not only does Jesus warn them that they wouldn't go, he continues on in verse 4. This is what you've heard from me. John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We take our understanding of what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit from the whole of Luke's material. In other words, as this is volume two of Luke's writing, we can look into volume one and understand something of what's intended by this concept of being baptized with the Holy Spirit from Luke chapter three. In fact, Jesus' baptism sets the context for our understanding of what it means to be baptized with the Spirit in this New Testament book of Acts kind of context. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is baptized, and at that time, descending upon him is the Holy Spirit. And in the context of that Gospel account, that experience, that being overwhelmed by, controlled by, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, enables Jesus to persevere in his ministry, even in the face of great opposition. Such that baptism with the Holy Spirit comes to mean to be consumed by the Holy Spirit so as to persevere even in the face of great opposition. To be baptized in the Spirit is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God so that we are able to follow after the pattern of Jesus who laid down even his earthly life for the well-being of the church and the advancement of his kingdom. It is precisely that to which we have been called in the gospel, that we would persevere by the power of the Spirit, even in the face of great opposition, laying down our lives, that the name of Jesus be greatly glorified and the kingdom of Christ be advanced in all the earth. Not only is there the promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there is further in verse number eight, the promise of great power. You'll receive 
power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I, I wonder if it isn't that we fail to really connect with, to avail ourselves of the benefit of this power of the Spirit in our selfishness and our pride. I would suggest to you that on the other side of those awkward pauses that can be a sometimes concerning part of spiritual conversations is the power of God's Holy Spirit. On the other side of that selfishness and egotism and pride that would prevent you from sharing with someone the message of the gospel out of fear of being ostracized or embarrassed or criticized in some kind of way. On the other side of that awkward pause is the power of God's spirit unto salvation. Here it has been promised to us that we would receive the Holy Spirit. The disciples are here spoken to in the future tense. They are to wait until the coming of the Holy Spirit. Less than 10 days they would wait before God would have the Spirit descend upon them, empowering them to preach with great power. Peter's sermon at Pentecost and presumably the sermons preached by other disciples within that multitude of people on that day. Wait for the coming of the Spirit is the message, but we needn't wait in our context, the gift of the Spirit has been offered. It has been given in full measure to all who have trusted and believed on His name so that we may truly say today, as followers of Jesus Christ, greater is He abiding in us than He who is in the world. God has given us all of the tools, all of the resources necessary to do what He has charged us with doing. We've made these observations before, but they're worth mentioning again. It is as though when the resources of the church, the natural resources of the church begin to increase, it seems that concurrently the real power of the church begins to decrease. And I'm convinced it doesn't have to be this way. There's nothing necessarily wrong with natural resources. It's just that we tend to get reliant on the natural resources. It's that seen versus unseen experience all over again from our study in the book of Hebrews. We see the resources here and we presume upon the effectiveness of those resources in fulfilling the commands that Christ has given us when those resources are actually functioning as an impediment to us. What we really need is the power of God's Holy Spirit over and against all of our natural abilities. There's a story told from church history. It's unclear to me at least whether or not it's rooted in fact, but it, it serves as a good parable for us. The story of St. Augustine being brought to St. Peter's Basilica after its completion and the Pope showing him around its halls and all of its fine architecture and speaking of the great mass of money they dumped into building this great structure. The Pope famously or infamously said to Augustine, no longer can we say silver and gold we have not. To which the saintly Augustine replied, yes, but neither can we say arise and walk. And that strikes at the heart of the issue for so much of Western Christianity. We tend to think that we can market our way to kingdom advancement. 
that through social media networking and fancy gimmicks and being attractional and sensitive to seekers, we can see the darkness beat back and the light advance. Brothers and sisters, the Church of Jesus Christ is not a Fortune 500 company. We have been empowered by God to do precisely what he has charged us to do, to go every man, woman, and child to share the good news of the gospel with a lost and dying world around us in such desperate need of salvation. Look mercifully upon the masses around you that so desperately need the message of the gospel. Go and share under the power of his Holy Spirit. Understand, God's called us to do something here that we can't do. You can't save anyone. You can preach and you can persuade and you can plead and your heart can be heavily burdened, but only God can turn the heart of man. Your gimmicks and your tactics, your tricks, they're not going to work. You have to do what you do under the unction, under the anointing, under the power of God's Holy Spirit. Only that can save. Power of the Spirit's made available to the church. Verse 8 speaks of what I've described here as the work of the Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. The product of that is that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The work of God's Spirit in the book of Acts is moving the church through the city of Jerusalem, into Judea and Samaria, to the very ends of the earth with the message of the gospel, such that this kind of becomes the methodology, the outline for the book of Acts. Chapters 1 through 7 deal with the advancement of the gospel in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 13 deal with the advancement of the gospel in Judea and Samaria. And the remainder of the book is really the movement of the gospel to the ends of the earth. An unfinished work. Acts ends abruptly. It looks like a rhetorical device there to help us to sort of piece ourselves into the story of what God is doing through the power of his spirit in the church he is building for his glory and the fame of his name. The work of the Spirit is the advancement of the kingdom. Do you see that in the passage? Just judgment day honesty here. I really hate the language of vision casting and mission statements and vision statements. When no one else is watching, I'll make fun of those kinds of things, right? Because it implies that we get to set the vision, that we determine the mission when nothing could be further from the truth. All we're attempting to do in our efforts at vision casting and mission statements and things such as that is to contextualize the agenda Jesus has already set for the church. This is Luke's iteration of the Great Commission. You will be empowered by the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We're left with the question of how we best join in this work God intends to do in the world around us. How do we position ourselves to be best used by God under the power of his spirit to see Jesus' name made famous in all the earth? That's the looming question. That's the question that we, the question that we've sought to answer in the goals that we have established for ourselves and rehearsed back last April and I'd like to rehearse again this morning. The primary way that we unite ourselves with the work of the spirit is in every member evangelism. Every member of the body of Christ telling others about the message of the gospel. 
I have wondered in the past few months what heaven might think about such a goal. I have wondered if there isn't some head scratching in heaven because the way that goal is stated would sound as if this is an optional thing for us. But I want you to know that sharing the gospel is not just a thing that we do as followers of Christ. It strikes at the very heart of who we are. If you have been touched by the power of the gospel, there is a compulsion that comes with that to tell others about how Jesus has so powerfully saved you from your sin. Every member of the body telling others about the power of the gospel, how Christ saved you and how by that power he can save them too. Tell them about how Jesus lived without sin, how he's perfect in righteousness. Tell them how he died on the cross as our substitute, how his blood was shed that our sin might be atoned for. Tell them how he breathed his last, even after, moments after, pleading for the forgiveness of those at whose hands he died. Tell them how they buried his body in a garden grave. Tell them how on the third day Jesus rose again. Tell them how he lives and how he beckons that we would come to him drinking deeply from the fountain of the water of life. Tell them how Jesus saves and how he's changed the course of your life and your eternal destiny. Tell them, tell them, tell them. This is who we are. This is what we have been placed here to do. There's a second thing here, and these first two go closely together. Every member evangelism, and then secondly, every member service. Think of every member evangelism as word ministry. And think, on the other hand, of every member service as deed ministry. These two go hand in hand. Let me show you what happens when they get out of balance. If you have an exclusively word-driven ministry, that's the only interest that you have. In other words, you pull back from doing any deeds, acts of service, or interest in the community around you. A word-driven, exclusively word-driven ministry model. Whether you like it or not, whether it's intended or not, you're going to be perceived in your community as only interested in increasing your market share. They only want to build their brand or strengthen their numbers, but there's no concern for the very real practical material and often financial needs of the community around. That's going to be the perception. And that's the way some ministries choose to go. On the other hand, if you go with an exclusively or imbalanced toward deed-driven ministry, you will quickly lose touch with the word, the gospel, and drift in the direction of addressing social concerns with greater concern or desire or earnestness than gospel concerns. And by the way, eternal concerns ought to always outweigh the temporal or the physical. It's not that you choose to do word ministry or deed ministry. It's that these two things go hand in hand. They are part and parcel. They are close friends. They are hand and glove. Word and deed ministry. Now, I think we're doing a better job than we've done in the past at encouraging those who are coming into the body to find their place of service and doing some follow-up in those areas. I think we're doing a better job at those coming in the door, helping them find their place of service. 
It's difficult, admittedly, to get a handle on places of service and opportunities for service for others who've been in the body for some time as these things are not always well-tracked. And we're great as Baptists at not being well-tracked, right? But I want you to know that the expectation is that every member of the body would be serving in some capacity, either within the body or external to the body in the community around us. This is back to the thing with evangelism. This is not just something that we do. This is a part of who we are, word and deed ministry. I've, I've come to a place where I'm saying this with a somewhat severe tone and starting point, which is our new membership process. And I, I always ask for grace when I say it, but I think it's worth repeating here. If, 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 you, if you have a mind to be a consumer Christian, in other words, if your interest is not in sharing the gospel, getting the gospel out, or your interest is not in ways that you can serve within the context of the church or community, we just don't have the capacity for you. We don't, there, this is not who we desire to be. And we want to militate against consumer Christianity and that mentality in this church today and tomorrow and forever as far as I'm concerned. I never want to be the maintenance pastor and I have no desire to be a part of a status quo church. I want to be a pastor and I want to be a part of a church the world would have to look at and face with, and recognize God has done something there. This is beyond their natural ability. He does not have the gifts and ability to pull this off. I know the dude. He can do it. Surely God has done something there. That's what we want. We position ourselves for that by faithfully sharing the gospel and by actively serving the body and those around us to see the kingdom advance. Here's the third thing. We set this sort of nebulous goal of 80% connect participation. The thinking there is if 20% of our Sunday morning attendants are non-members, that's a healthy indication that we're inviting and sharing and encouraging those within our community to join together with us. The flip side of that is 80% would be membership. And so you would anticipate that 80, roughly 80% would be a part of connect group ministry. Those are our small group discipleship ministry groups here at, at the point. I'll settle for 90% or 110%. You know, I'm, I'm easy to please, but I think this, this, is a, this is a good target for us for the moment. And I want you to know, listen, I want you to know that if you are not a part of Connect Group Ministry, you are going to be underserved as a member at Longview Point. There is so much of pastoral and practical ministry that is happening within Connect Ministry. If you are relying exclusively on the pastoral staff to meet your pastoral needs, you, you're going to eventually be underserved and you're going to be mad at me or another pastor before it's all over with. But you're setting yourself up for that if you're not a part of Connect Ministry within our body. I also want you to know you're missing out on a remarkable blessing if you're not a part of that. Can I, can I just take a moment or two and tell you a little story? One of, one of our connect groups a couple of years ago began praying for a group of friends, a group of old friends to one of the members of that particular connect group, praying for them by name as opportunity arose, meeting the practical needs, financial needs at times that would arise within their life, reaching out to them, sharing the message of the gospel, and eventually a man and a woman within that friend group came to faith in Jesus. 
They began to attend that connect group. They were baptized right here at Longview Point. And they began to grow in grace, began to participate in missions and evangelism. Now, that man and woman had had a relationship in the past. In fact, they shared children together, and their daughter was saved as well. In fact, just in the past few weeks, their, their, their daughter, who attends Hernando Middle School, has been an incredible encouragement to one of my sons in sharing the message of the gospel right here. In fact, their daughter is, in my mind, our most faithful evangelist right here at Hernando Middle. The, the daughter of those two lost people our connect group began to pray for, who came to faith in Jesus, whose daughter likewise came to know Christ. And I've sort of watched them for several months now with this sort of song and dance, this obvious affection for one another, but reluctance to be back in relationship given all of the water under that bridge. God had done a remarkable work in their life. Last Sunday morning in the 11 o'clock service, they had everyone gathered there in their connect class. And when Lisa came in, Guy took a knee and opened that ring and asked her to be his wife. And she said, yes. How about that? Now, they asked that. He asked that. They did that there because there was no other group of people they would have rathered shared that moment with than that connect group that had grown so fond of them and prayed them to Jesus over the last couple of years. You know where they are this morning? They're at a graduation at John 316 Rehabilitation Facility where one of the other members of that friend group, that connect group began to pray for is graduating. Free, liberated, found Jesus, but free from the bondage of addiction and has now committed himself to remain there for several months to encourage other men struggling with substance abuse to keep the faith, to come to Jesus, to rid themselves of sin, and to embrace the cross and all that Christ has done for them. That's the kind of real-life ministry that you're missing out on if you're not a part of Connect Group Ministry at the point. Now, I'm going to tell you just briefly about a problem with some of our connect groups. Y'all ready? The problem with some of our connect groups are they're too good. And what I mean by that is those people love you well, and you love them, and you have great, great teachers. And you don't want to do anything that, that would compromise what you so enjoy in that setting, so you just stay. You just stay. It just keeps growing and just keeps growing. You just stay. And we've got a few connect groups that have in reality four or five or six connect groups that are meeting all together. I'm going to tell you something that's characteristic of the early church's experience in the book of Acts that was key to their ability to continue to see the kingdom advance. They were willing to give away their best for the advancement of the gospel. You look to the church at Antioch, that hub for mission sending in the first century. They always sent their best. And for some of you, you're going to have to give away your best to begin again planning new groups to afford others the opportunity to be the beneficiary of the kind of encouragement and discipleship that you have enjoyed until now in that very group context. In fact, let, let me suggest to you that, that there's a hint, in fact, maybe more than a hint of selfishness in remaining in that group that you love with all of your heart when God has entrusted to your care 
the gifts and abilities necessary to provide the similar or same environment elsewhere that multitudes of others could receive the same encouragement that you yourself have received. One of the things that stifles growth in Connect ministry is that many of the next generation of Connect leaders are in classes they love with all their heart, and you're going to have to give away some of your best to see the kingdom expand in that regard. If you're missing out on Connect, oh boy, you're missing out. Here's a fourth goal. 30 church plants by 2030. That, again, is sort of a nebulous number. We thought that was a lofty goal, but an attainable goal for us, and so we said 30 in 10 years. I'm happy to report to you this morning, we are on course even just six months into our efforts at meeting that goal. We need three a year over 10 years. That gets us to where we want to be. Right now, we have James Cheatham actively planning. They're meeting together for worship in Greenwood, Mississippi. Brian Hood is working toward a soft launch and a full launch in uh, a soft launch in April of next year, full launch in August of next year here in DeSoto County. And just last week, you affirmed the calling of West Smith who's going to be planning in Cleveland. We're excited about Wes and Jamie Clare and all the Lord is doing in them. In fact, Wes is in our service here this morning. We are on track, and I celebrate that. But there are a couple of things I want to say about it. One, I want you to realize how critically essential your faithfulness in giving is to our ability to meet this particular goal. When a church plant resident comes to be a part of our team, we commit to pay them $20,000 for the first two years. And in certain places like Greenwood and Cleveland, where the going is a little tougher than it might be elsewhere, we understand that sometimes you need a little longer runway to get things off the ground. We often extend to a third year. Just think about that for just a moment. Now, they're living on more than that, modestly compensated, but they're raising funding outside of that 20000 and hopefully they're beginning that process even in their first year, their year of residency with us. That means that this year there are three church plant residents, which is just $60,000 of our budget, but that also means that next year, with the introduction of three new church plant residents, there are then six church plant residents on our budget, which means $120,000 within our budget. And that also would be an indication that in the third year, with God's grace and favor, there will be nine church planters on our budget. You just start doing the math. So your faithfulness in giving, I, I, want, I, want, I always want you to be able to see this, that when we give here, that when we give here, there's an awareness, there, there's a keen sensitivity to the fact that these resources are not ours, they are God's. And woe unto us if the bulk of them are used in service to our needs or our little kingdom here. We want that our giving be leveraged to see the kingdom advanced elsewhere. Confident that in God's economy, as we give with open hands, he will lavish us with grace, meeting all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So one, thank you for your generosity in giving. Two, until now, we have looked at almost, do you see that? I looked at my watch. You know what I remembered as I did? It's the 11 o'clock service, and I thank God for you. <laughs> Nobody's coming after you. We have looked almost exclusively outside of this body for church plant residents. 
And we've really gotten to a place where we're kind of the church plant residency place. I think we may be the only residency program in the state of Mississippi. And frankly, there aren't a lot of them out there. So if there's a man who feels a sense of calling to church planning, it's pretty common for them to call us and at least ask for some direction and insight. How do I get started and those sorts of things? We've looked outside and I'm not opposed to that. Celebrate that. I'm thankful for these men that God is sending us. But here's what I know. Right here within the membership of Longview Point, there are men who have been gifted and called by God with all of the resources necessary to go and to plant their lives in other communities to see churches planted, to see the kingdom advanced. In fact, I've got a few lunch appointments on my schedule for the next few weeks to ask men, has God told you yet what seems so abundantly clear to everyone else? As, as we press toward this goal of planting churches and planting dozens of churches in the years ahead, I want you to know and understand full well that there is nothing that would preclude us from planting churches that were pastored by men that God had called and gifted from right here out of this congregation. You should be sensitive to the work of God's spirit. Where do you think pastors come from? There's not like a warehouse somewhere where God makes them. They come from churches like this, from chairs like those, from families like yours. That's where pastors and missionaries and church planners come from. For some of you, God may be calling you away from a career. God may be calling you out of one vocation into another to leverage your life to see churches planted in the kingdom advanced. Be sensitive. Be aware to the leadership of God's spirit in that way. The fifth goal, and one that we want to be careful, never takes priority over these others, is to meet facility needs that are real to us without incurring debt in the days ahead. I, you know, there's, there's two sides of this for me. There, there is the side that says, in our cultural context, there are certain facility expectations that exist and can be real impediments to church growth and kingdom advancement when not addressed. I get all that. And I get that they're real for us. Like some of you struggled finding parking this morning. When Stephen sings too long in the 930 service, it makes it hard for y'all to find spots. It has nothing to do with the preaching whatsoever. And so I get that can be kind of an inconvenience. Some of you came in from connect classes that are a little crowded. We, we, need, we need to add some staff next year. You'll see that reflected in the budget. And someone was asking me Friday, where are we going to put them? I've even thought about installing some shelving in the offices. We put some staff people on shelves and we can double space. Like I get there are very real facility needs like space needs. But at the same time, guys, these are really first world problems, right? So that balance we need to maintain in our hearts. We need to be really careful that we maintain that balance in our heart. The other thing is we want to make sure that we address these needs along the way without incurring debt that would limit us in being who we are or doing the ministry that we endeavor to, to do. Like I, I think some people think that I'm just may, maybe driven by that thing, by like a, a real spirit of anti-debt. I'm not crazy about debt, but that's not the biggest concern for me. The biggest concern for me is losing perspective and losing capacity for ministry.
Look around. Look around. Churches that have square footage have a tendency not to need it. Churches that need square footage have a tendency not to have it. You know why? Because most of, most, most of your church budget, and people don't realize this, but most of your church budget is fixed cost. I got to eat. I got bills to pay. You can call Entergy, but they're going to charge you the same. The bill's going to be the same. Their maintenance costs. And these things don't change. Insurance is going to go up every year. They're fixed cost in your budget. You know what's not fixed in the mind of some? Ministry and missions. And so the moment you allow yourself to get saddled with servicing, building funds and debts that you have no control over, you limit your capacity for missions and ministry. So I've already had a few people say, Brother Wade, you know, with these interest rates, we could go ahead and we could knock this thing out. And listen, I love y'all, but it ain't happening. Because I will not be handcuffed from doing missions and ministry, nor will we as a body by servicing a boatload of debt that in the grand scheme of things only addressed our first world comfort issues. So let's be cautious and careful in that regard. At the same time, we want to be wise, prudent, and plan so that we can reasonably meet those needs in a way that isn't an encumbrance to us in continuing to advance the gospel. So we sort of broke our facility needs into three phases back in April. Maybe you remember those. And right now the focus would be phase one. And you've heard next to nothing unless you've asked about phase one since April. In part to give you a little break. In part because I don't like to be the capital campaign pastor. And I want you to know that these things are right where they need to be in a secondary position in my heart. And I hope they remain there for you as well. But I want you to know that since April, in the past six months, without our breathing a word of these needs, that you have given as a body, collectively, nearly $800,000 toward phase one of meeting our facility needs. Now, phase one is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of $3 million, so there's still a ways to go. And I am praying ambitiously that God would afford us the ability financially to be able potentially even to break ground next year, which means over the course of the next year, we need to raise somewhere around $2 million in order to be able to pull that off. And we have the capacity with God's grace and help to be able to do that. I wanted that to be on your radar, given that we're nearing the end of the year and end of year giving is a concern for many. So please pray as to how you should give. Now, I said this when we were in the debt retirement plan. I want to say it, reiterate this again here. For some of you, you'll make decisions between giving to missions, ministry, Lottie Moon, for instance, and giving toward a capital campaign or phase one building fund. That should be a no-brainer, easy decision for you to make. You always give to the mission. Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added unto you. Building funds and facility needs comes under, in my estimation, all these things. When the priorities, in God's constitution, when the priority is mission and ministry, God always takes care of the rest. So that's a no-brainer decision, but there is opportunity for you to be able to give toward our ability to break ground and get started on phase one of meeting these facility needs. Now sympathize with me as we're drawing near the end here. It's very difficult to talk about building funds and vision casting and sound very inspirational or sermonic. But I want you to know our heart as a body. 
And I hope that God is day by day, week by week, month by month, pressing upon your heart these as priorities in your personal life. That this is not just something that we see as out there, a concept or targets for us as a group, but as individuals that we are orienting our lives around the achievement of these goals, these objectives established for ourselves in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I hope that you're making decisions within your life personally to be better faithful in telling others about Jesus. I hope that you're looking in your life individually for opportunities to be of service to the church and the community around you. I hope that you in your life are making plans, are desirous of, or making real efforts at getting connected within a small group ministry here in our church. I hope that as you give, there's an added measure of cheer in your heart because you know that those dollars are making the lances of the world able to be on the field, the West Smiths of the world able to plant churches. Your dollars are making gospel ministries go. May our hearts burst with cheer as we give graciously, even as the Lord has given unto us. I, I, I hope that you'll depart today with excitement about what the future holds. And I, I hope there'll be a firm resolve among us that what the future holds would be far more than the sum total of our natural gifts and abilities. Just one last thing in our passage. This is a very underrated part of the Acts story. This is the element in Acts that is not discussed enough. Look down to verse number 14. After the disciples had returned to Jerusalem and gathered in the upper room, verse 14 says, all these, that is the disciples and others, were continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The ministry of prayer is what seems to make it go. I don't mean that there's power in the prayer itself. I mean there's power in the God to whom we pray. When we get before God with earnestness in our heart, asking that he would do exceedingly and abundantly beyond anything we could think or hope to imagine, that he is so often pleased to do it. So often we think of prayer as sort of the last resort. I can't do anything else, so I'll just pray. But prayer is the great word. You can't do what we have been called upon to do in this passage and countless others apart from the power of the Spirit. How do you avail yourself of that power? Through prayer. Pray. Pray with the Spirit of Jacob that says, God, I will not let you go unless or until you bless me. Wrestle with God in the night and plead that he would move in these ways in your life. We're going to have an invitation time in just a moment. It will be the customary invitation time where if you're here this morning and you would believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, we invite you to come to Jesus and to come to visit with one of our pastors. We'll show you as best we can what the Bible says about being a follower of Jesus, about the gift of everlasting life, about the hope of heaven, about grace and the forgiveness of sin. You come. Maybe God's calling you into the fellowship of this church. This kind of vision excites you and encourages you. The idea of being a part of something like this is important to you and you want to be a part of that. We would delight to have you as a part of our faith family. But this morning, of all mornings, church folks, the membership of Longview Point, this morning's invitation ought to function for you as a call to prayer. 
where you are or here on the steps, bowing together in smaller groups, asking that God would move in the most powerful of ways, that he would protect us from pride and egotism, that even along the way, our faults and failures would only serve to deflect the glory from us to the one who deserves it, Jesus Christ. That in spite of our shortcomings, our foolishness, our ineffectiveness, and our inability, that God would be pleased to move among us. That the darkness would be beaten back by the light. That the kingdom would win out. That Jesus would be famous in all the earth. Would you pray that way? With earnestness and with zeal. Here or there. I don't care where you pray. I just want you to pray. Stephen's going to come and he's going to lead. Let him sing it. For once, let him sing it. And let's just pray together with our hearts united in prayer. Let's plead with heaven that God would move here in our hearts and in this body in such a powerful way. The world would have to acknowledge that this thing is of God. I think that's what it means to decrease in order that Jesus might increase. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you've saved us. Lord, in light of what you have called us into, your eternal plan and purpose, and in light of the great privilege that is ours in being a part of redemption's history, Lord, I feel so small, and I, I hope that your people here have the same sensation. I pray, God, that you would help us to pour ourselves out as living sacrifices in service to Jesus and for the advancement of the kingdom. God, I pray that you would help us in that. If we're honest, there are times when we don't want that. We want our kingdom over yours. We want to do what we want to do as opposed to what you've charged us with doing. God, I pray that you'd forgive us of that even now. Lord, I know it's coming in my own heart when the drift takes place. God, forgive me. Rebuke me and correct me. God, I would ask the same for this body. Lord, I, I pray that you would help us, truly help us by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit to do something with our lives individually and collectively that would matter a thousand years from now. God, forgive us for the many times that we are drawn to the things of this world, these toys and counterfeits and gimmicks that bear no significance. God, forgive us of that. Give us a spirit of perseverance, even in the face of opposition. Baptize us in your Holy Spirit that we might walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Lord, even as we go and we share and we minister, there are often times when we feel such powerlessness. God, I, I pray that you would attend our efforts at ministry and preaching by the power of your spirit. Only you can turn the hearts of men. So we ask that you would do just that. Draw the net. Call many to faith. Move among us, we pray, God. We recognize, Lord, that we are not our sufficiency. Christ alone is. God, I, I, I really, more than anything in this world, would love to see you work in these ways. Grant it so, God, in Jesus' name.